Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. Scripture reading for the sermon today is Judges, both chapters 20 and 21, and I'll be reading chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, and chapter 21, verse 5. Then all the people of Israel came out, from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have a lot to cover. There's a lot of details. Let's buckle up. Let's pray. And we'll dive in. Father, I'm just grateful for your word and how your gospel is good all the way down into the details, even the dark ones. And I pray that as we finish up this book this morning, that we would see more clearly than ever before, the goodness of your gospel and how it affects how we should live in the midst of a dark world. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by your spirit. Amen. If you haven't had a chance, I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 20. And if you're one of those people that likes to read the sermon title on the back of the bulletin, you may be a little bit confused when you saw that today's sermon is entitled, When All Other Lights Go Out, Part Two. You may be like, well, when was part one? Part one was 11 months ago. Um, it was the first sermon in this series. In fact, When All Other Lights Go Out, that's the title that I gave to this entire series. Because as we've seen, the book of Judges is the darkest book in the Bible. It feels like every light of hope is just being extinguished around every single corner. Like the deeper we've gotten into this book, the darker things have, have gotten until it feels like all hope has been extinguished. But Shades, we've seen that that is precisely where, that's precisely when we see a light that the darkness cannot conquer, the light of the gospel of Christ. We can confess all day long that Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome him. We can confess that, but we only know that, experience that in the depths of the darkness. Like you can only know Christ as the unconquerable light precisely when all other lights go out. And I pray, I pray that that's what we've seen throughout this series. And I, I hope, I hope that's what we will see today as we finish this series. I hope that in, in this dark conclusion to the book of Judges, I hope that we will see the light of the gospel of Christ shining at its brightest. I hope we'll see that specifically so we'll know how to respond to the darkness. Is that not the lingering question that's kind of been sticking with us all the way throughout this series? Like, how should we respond to the darkness that we've encountered in Judges? Or another way of saying that is how should we respond to the darkness we encounter in our world? Because as we've seen, our world is a lot like judges. I mean, one of, Shades, one of the primary reasons that I wanted us to journey through this book is because we live in an age where we are hyper aware of the darkness of our world. 
just surrounded by it all the time. And, and so many Christians respond to that darkness by despairing or, or by panicking. I just ask, why? Why would that be our response if we truly are the only ones that have a light that darkness cannot conquer? Like we, we don't respond to the darkness by despairing. We, we are not a people who panic. So how? How are we to respond to the darkness of this world, the darkness that we've seen on every page in Judges? I believe this is precisely what Judges chapter 20 and 21 help us see. They help us see how to respond to the darkness, and they do that by showing us how Israel herself responds. Let's dive into it together. Judges chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. That's like saying from Huntsville to Mobile, like the whole state, all of Alabama, all of Israel, including the land of Gilead. If you're a Bama fan, that would be like saying even Auburn was there or vice versa. If you're an Auburn fan, you're like Tuscaloosa showed up too. All right. So including the land of Gilead and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. This looks like a worship gathering. It's not. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. This is not a gathering for worship. It's a gathering for war. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Benjamites are the only ones not there. If you were here last week, you know why. If you weren't here last week, you'll know why in just a second. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? What evil? The evil we're about to hear about. But before we do, it's important to notice right here, something is happening right here that hasn't happened since the very beginning of this book. All of Israel is gathering together unified. Benjamin doesn't count. They're the enemy in this picture. Like, like that hasn't happened since Judges 1. This is how the book began. Do you, do you remember? Judges 1 and verse 1. The people of Israel. That's all of Israel. They gathered together. They inquired of the Lord. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. When this book began, Israel was unified with God as their commander in chief. He brought them into the land of Canaan, broken the back of Canaanite resistance, and now he's commissioning them on a mission to finish driving out the Canaanites. Clear them out, which we've seen throughout the book. That's not what happens at all. Israel doesn't clear out the Canaanites. No, instead they become just like them. They're Canaanized. They fail and they fragment. Like we've seen a couple of tribes working together here and there, but, but we've never seen all of Israel unified again until right here. But note, this unity is not under the command of God, nor is it unity to make war against the Canaanites. They've assembled because of the command of a man, Levite, we're going to see in just a second. And they will end up making war against their own brothers, the Benjamites. They're going to make war against themselves. Shades, shades. Through this conclusion, this is the first time we're seeing it, we're going to see it over and over again. Through this conclusion, everything we have seen throughout the book of Judges gets turned completely upside down. Like we are being shown that we've reached the finish. We are at the bottom. We began this thing with the people assembling under the command of God, not now. We began with them fighting against the Canaanites. Now they are the Canaanites. They are fighting against themselves. Everything is, is upside down. That's what we will see again and again through Israel's response to the evil that's happened in their midst. What evil? It's the evil that we talked about last week as we walked through Judges chapter 19. Don't worry, if you weren't here, the Levite from last week gives us a summary. Look at verses 4 to 7. And the Levite 
the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, and I had my concubine, and I came there to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. They violated my concubine, and she is dead. So, this is what he did after she died. I took hold of my concubine, I cut her into pieces, and I sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So this atrocity happens, and the Levite does this as a call to war. A call for all of Israel to come together because of the great evil that's happened in their midst, and to respond. Now, if you weren't here last week, you should know that in this summary speech, this Levite is lying. Like, not about everything. I mean, he gives a basic outline of what happened, but he leaves out anything that would make himself look guilty. Like, go back and read Judges 19. He, he is responsible for sacrificing the life of his concubine. But here's the deal, Shades. The truth is not important when your goal is to do what's right in your own eyes. That's his goal. That's what he's doing. He feels like he has been violated, his honor has been diminished, and something's got to be done on his behalf. This is not about justice for his murdered concubine. This is about justice for him. The truth doesn't matter. He's just trying to get achieved what he sees is right in his own eyes. Do you remember that refrain? what's right in your own eyes. Like throughout the concluding chapters of, of the book of Judges, we've heard that refrain over and over again. In fact, the full refrain goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We've already heard that saying three times through the concluding chapters of this book. We'll get it one more time. It's actually the very last verse of the book, chapter 21 and verse 25. It's the last thing we get to hear. People had no king, so they all acted like their own. Did what was right in their own eyes. That's what this Levite is doing, and that's what all of Israel will do in response to what he has said. They will come up with a plan. They will execute judgment and justice as they see fit. They're all appalled by what the Benjamites of Gibeah did, and, and rightly so. So, just like they gathered in Judges 1 to make war against the Canaanites, now they gather, all unified again, to make war against the Benjamites, one of their own tribes. Shades. Right here in Judges 20, our author wants us to see that the events of Judges 1 are repeating. He parallels them on purpose. The events are repeating, except this time Israel has become her own enemy. This time Israel stands in the place of the Canaanites. Everything's upside down because Israel's been Canaanized. And when I say that, Israel's been Canaanized, I'm not just talking about the men of Gibeah, those Benjamites who committed this atrocity. No, we're actually shown through this passage, not just the men of Gibeah, the whole tribe of Benjamin has been Canaanized. That's what we see in verses 12 to 17. Here's what happens. The, these united tribes of Israel, they say to the tribe of Benjamin, they're like, listen, we want justice against these men. Hand over the men of Gibeah. But Benjamin won't do it. They respond in defense of these men's wickedness. They defend their Canaanite-like brothers because they've been Canaanized too. So all of Benjamin assembles for war, 26,000 soldiers and 700 special forces. It's actually really interesting. If you read about the details in, there's so many details that are so cool in these last chapters and we don't have time, but we got time for this one. If you read in, chapter, in, in verse 16, you get the details about these special forces, these 700 guys that Benjamin musters. They're special forces because they're all expert marksmen, specifically with their left hand. They're left-handed. Now, if you've been with us throughout Judges, left-handed Benjamites should be ringing a bell. Does anybody remember all the way back to the second major judge we saw? He was my favorite, Ehud. 
the left-handed Benjamite. And if you remember what we saw through his story, what we were being taught was through Ehud's left-handedness, which was considered a weakness. So God's choice of him as a deliverer looked unwise. And what we were being shown is God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world specifically to display his strength. But look what's happened right here in the conclusion. The Benjamites have figured out a way to turn that weakness into a strength. Hey, by themselves, left-handed guys are a weakness, but if we put 700 of them together, if we train them to be expert marksmen, then we have guys slinging stones from an angle that those soldiers have never seen. And so left-handedness becomes a wise way to do war, a way to exercise your own strength. Everything's upside down. Even the very lessons we learn through the specific judges like Ehud, that kind of stuff is all over the place. The men of Gibeah aren't the only ones that have been canonized. So has the entire tribe of Benjamin. That's what we see through their response. And not only that, not just the men of Gibeah, not just the entire tribe of the Benjamites, but all of the Israelites, we're meant to see that they have been canonized as well. Yes, all of those united Israelites who are united against evil, who we kind of feel like they're on the right side of justice, they've been canonized too. We see that through the two ways that they respond to this darkness. This is what we're going to hone in on for the rest of our time. So number one, number one, the people take the execution of God's judgment into their own hands. This is how Israel responds to the darkness that they've seen. They take the execution of God's judgment into their own hands. This is what we see in verse 18 and through the rest of chapter 20. Look at it with me. Verse 18. The people of Israel, all those united tribes, they arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, right about here, I imagine that some of you might be confused. Like Jonathan, you said that we were about to see how Israel responds like a bunch of Canaanites. But verse 18 that we just read, that isn't that them coming to God as their commander right here? Aren't they seeking his will just like they did back in chapter 1 of this book? In fact, did verse 18 right there not perfectly echo Judges 1-1 that I read to you just a few minutes ago? Judges 1-1, the people inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us first to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord said, send Judah up first, for I have given the land into his hand. Don't we hear the same thing right here? Yeah. And No. Our author is echoing the first verse of this book on purpose, but not so that we'll see the similarities, but so that we'll see the differences. In Judges chapter 1, we are specifically told the people inquired of the Lord, Yahweh. That's his covenant name. They come to him. As their commander-in-chief, they're in covenant relationship with him, and they're wanting to keep the covenant. But here... In Judges 20, we read, they inquired of God, Elohim. That is a generic Hebrew word for a deity. Now listen, when you read through Scripture and you see swapping between God and the Lord, Yahweh, Elohim, it's not always significant. But it is right here. Because these verses are perfect parallels. Judges 1.1 and Judges 20 and verse 18. They are perfect parallels except for a very few words that the author has, has changed on purpose. And what he is doing right here is he's wanting us to see they are not coming to God, treating him as a commander with whom they are in covenant relationship with. No, they are coming to him as a generic deity, the way that the pagan Canaanites approach their patron gods. We're going to see that even more clearly in just a minute. But there's a second difference between Judges 1-1 and Judges 20-18 that we need to see right here. Namely, how God responds to the people's request. It looks like he responds in the exact same way. But no, 
In Judges 1, he said, send Judah up first to fight against the Canaanites. Here, he also says, send Judah up first to fight against the Benjamites, but something's missing. In chapter 1, when he said, send Judah up, he attached a promise to that command. For I have given the land into his hand. But here, in chapter 20, that promise is painfully absent. It's, it's like God is saying, go up, but I will not go with you. They don't care. They're not even here asking if they should fight the Benjamites. I mean, Judges 1, the only reason they go to war with the Canaanites is because God told them to. He hadn't told them to do any such thing right here. They don't even ask if they should go, just who do we send first? Because we're going to do what's right in our own eyes. We just want a pagan-like blessing from our, page, our, our patron deity. But Yahweh won't be manipulated by empty religiosity. We see that through what happens. Oh, Israel goes up. You can read about it. Verses 19 to 21, they take a far superior force and suffer a devastating defeat. 22,000 of their own dead. Like, what the heck just happened? So they come to the Lord again. In verses 22 and 23, this time they weep. This time they ask, should we even go up to fight? But I think that all of this begging and weeping is still perfunctory religiosity. I think that because God sends them up again, and again they lose. 18,000 men this time. They are down 40,000 troops. And this, this shades is where I become absolutely convinced that what we are seeing is God's judgment first being poured out on these united tribes of Israel before he ever pours out judgment on the Benjamites. He will. We'll get there. But first, all Israel who thinks they are in the right, God uses the wicked Benjamites for his righteous purposes, to execute his just judgment against his people who've broken covenant and become just like Canaanites. God does this all throughout scripture. If you have problems with God using evil, wicked people to execute his right, righteous purposes, you're gonna have a lot of problems with the Bible and a lot of problems with Christianity because that's precisely what he does at the heart of what we believe at the cross. He uses evil, wicked, horrid purposes to people to, to accomplish his good, right, and righteous purposes. That's what he's doing right here through the wicked Benjamites. He's using them to first judge all of Israel. I, I think we know that for certain because this passage in front of us is echoing another Old Testament story. If you've been with us throughout this series, you know that our author in the book of Judges, he does this all the time. Like when he wants to help us know how we should interpret what we're seeing in front of us, often he echoes another Old Testament story that we're meant to use to, as, as a lens, an interpretive lens through which we read what's in, in front of us. And right here, he's echoing an Old Testament story from Joshua chapter 7. If you can remember, the book of Joshua takes us back in time to when God first brought his people into the land of Canaan for them to conquer it. Anybody remember the first battle they fight? What city it's against? Famous battle. Somebody went to Sunday school. Jericho. Jericho. In the big walls, Joshua fought the battle. The walls came tumbling down. Preacher's kid. Sorry. Anyway... Yeah, they fight this very famous battle of Jericho. Does anybody remember the second city they fight against? Somebody said it. Somebody's embarrassed that they went to Sunday school. Yeah, AI. Not, not like chat GPT, like artificial intelligence thing. It's the name of the city, okay? AI. 
and they go and they fight against AI and they lose. Why do they lose? They, they lose because there is sin in their midst. Someone is not doing war in the way that Yahweh has commanded. Someone is not following his lead. Someone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And Judges 7 in the battle of AI and Judges 20 and these fights against the Benjamites, they parallel one another crazily. Like just set the chapters side by side. And through the parallels, we are meant to see the same thing is happening here as happened in Judges chapter seven. The people are losing because the people are in rebellion against God and this is his judgment coming down on them. Like I don't care what it looks like on the surface as we see Israel go through all these religious actions and cry out and inquire of the Lord. They're doing all of it as if it's pagan magic. Just ritualistic things we can do to guarantee favor from, from the gods so we can get what we want. I know that's what they're doing because we're told explicitly so in verse 27. Look at it. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For, here's why. Why are they coming to God again and again and again? For. The ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, Aaron was the first and greatest high priest of Israel, the brother of Moses. His grandson, Phinehas, ministered before it in those days. In other words, they are doing all of this inquiring where they're doing it because the ark of God is here and it's like our little magical token and we've got the most legit priest here. We've got Aaron's own grandson. They're treating all of these things like they are magical guarantees. But we are seeing that the only thing guaranteed in this chapter is there's nothing they can do to take God's judgment into their own hands. His judgment belongs to him and him alone. And he pours it out where, when, and how as he wills. Shades, this is what we need to see right here in Judges' conclusion. We need to see how the people are responding to the darkness in this book. The people try to take the execution of God's judgment into their own hands. What belongs to God and God alone? His judgment. They seek to execute it in whatever way seems right in their own eyes. They decide, Benjamin, yeah, irredeemable, unsavable. So they'll decide what Benjamin deserves, total annihilation. And then they'll just ask God for his seal of approval. They are putting themselves in God's judgment seat. And the warning is they end up being judged themselves. Shades, what I want us to see, do, do you see, do you see the similarities right here between Israel and ourselves so often? Like, like how... How do Christians respond to the darkness of this world? Do we not often take the execution of God's judgment into our own hands? Do we not often place ourselves in God's judgment seat where we decide this world, irredeemable, unsavable, so we can decide what it deserves and merely ask God for his seal of approval on our judgments. I'll, ju I'll just give you one example of how we do this. Despair. We do this through despair. Through despair, we put ourselves in God's judgment seat. Here's, here's what despair sounds like on the lips of Christians sitting in God's seat of judgment. Our world is going to hell in a handbasket. Look at, what, look at what the world is coming to. Things, things have never been worse than they are now. These are all statements of despair. And in that despair, we are pronouncing judgment on our world. It's damned. Irredeemable. Unsavable. So... I can disengage from it. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Let it go. I can disengage from it, withdraw into my little Christian enclave and just let it go to hell like it deserves. 
We do this not only in judgment of the world, we do this often in judgment of the church. Churches go into hell in a handbasket so I can disengage, withdraw into my little Christian enclave of the two other people who agree with everything that I say is true about Christianity. I, I take the execution of God's judgment in my own hands and I relate to the world in a way or the church, in a way that looks right in my own eyes. But shades, judges refuses. It refuses to let us respond to the darkness that way. I told you, I told you all the way back at the beginning of this series that when we say things like, man, things have never been worse than they are now, judges says, hold my beer. Like, like, here we have seen depths of darkness like unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. And simultaneously, at the depths of that darkness, we've seen the bright light of the gospel. Judges won't let us despair. It shows us that it's precisely when all other lights go out that we see the gospel's unconquerable light. Theologian Carl F. Henry, he said it this way. He says, the early church did not say, look at what the world is coming to. The early church said, look what has come into the world. A light. The light of Christ is shown in the darkness and the darkness can't conquer it. He's the light of the world and he's called us to respond to that light by reflecting it. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, but you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, why? Why has he called you out? Why has he called you to himself? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To go into the darkness and shine a light, that's why he called you out. Jesus says it rather explicitly in Matthew 5.14. He looks at his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. Jesus made that statement. In the Gospel of John, he makes that statement about himself. I am the light of the world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus made a lot of I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. The light of the world is the only one of those I am statements that I'm aware of that Jesus ever applies to us. I'm the light and I've called you out to be a light. Shades, it is not for us to condemn the world to hell in a handbasket. Judgment belongs to the one who judges justly. We dare not take his judgment into our hands. Despair is not how we respond to the darkness. No, we respond with faith. That's the flip side of despair. We respond with faith. Faith that one day... God will judge perfectly, so I don't have to. Faith that one day God will execute perfect justice, right every wrong. So even when this world wrongs me right now, I don't have to right it. I don't have to get revenge. No, my just judge says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And my faith in his justice sets me free from taking judgment into my own hands. Because I know, I know the darkness won't win. I have faith that his just judgment wins. So I don't respond to the darkness of this world with despair. I respond with faith. The rest of Judges chapter 20 should fortify our faith that judgment belongs to the Lord. In verse 28, he tells Israel, to go up against the Benjamites one more time. But now he promises victory. I'm going to give them into your hands. Now he executes his righteous judgment on the Benjamites. And yes, he's still doing it through a wicked force. He does it through the wicked Israelites. Who prove their wickedness even more. Because after they've actually won the victory, they keep going. They go throughout all the territory of Benjamin until they have killed everybody and everything except 600 men who slipped through their fingers to go hide in a bunch of desert caves. The entire tribe of Benjamin reduced down to 600. They, 
they take the very instructions that God once gave for wiping out the Canaanites and they apply them to the Benjamites. Everything's upside down. And after the dust has settled, Israel knows. Despite the fact they've executed judgment as they thought was fit, they know something's not right. Things aren't right. As we move into chapter 21, we find Israel weeping. They're grieving over the loss of the tribe of Benjamin. This may be confusing to us, but this is the nature of civil war. Like even when you win, you weep. You're killing your own kin, your own brothers. And every nation that has experienced civil war eventually has to face the questions, how do we reunite? How do we rebuild? That's what Israel is asking in this final chapter as they weep before the Lord and they offer sacrifices and they try to come up with a solution. But shades, this is just more empty religiosity. And God is not deceived by their empty religious actions. You can see their empty religious actions because they actually blame God for what's happened. Look at at chapter 21 and verse 3. Verse 3. And they said, O Lord, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. It's a good thing I'm not God. I would, whoa, I would get so sarcastic right here. Like, like why is this happening? Like, you made this happen. Like, you did what was right and wise and just in your eyes, and you now realize it made things worse. And you're blaming me? Is this not, oh my goodness, how often do I relate to God this way? doing what is right in my own eyes and when it makes things worse. I'm like, what what are you doing? They blame God. Basically what they're saying as they blame God is, God, you made promises to us as a nation, but part of that nation has been hacked off. Literally, that's what they say in verse six. In verse six, there's a a Hebrew word used that describes the hacking off of like a, a limb off of a tree. And they're using it to say, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin has been hacked off from the body of Israel. We've been dismembered and it's all your fault, God. How blind are they? They don't see. They don't see shades that by taking God's judgment into their own hands, they have multiplied the sins of Benjamin. Benjamin, who murdered the Levite's concubine that led to her being dismembered, They've multiplied those sins. By taking God's judgment in their own hands, it has led to the deaths of more than 65,000 people and the dismemberment of the nation itself. And now, in the midst of that darkness, we see Israel's second response. We see their second response to darkness. And it's at the opposite end of the spectrum from the first. Like, Like we've seen them respond to the darkness by taking the execution of God's judgment into their own hands. Now we see, number two, the people take the fulfillment of God's promises into their own hands. This is how they respond to the darkness right here. The people take the fulfillment of God's promises into their own hands. God is completely silent in Judges 21. So in verses 8 to 15, Israel's got to come up with their own plan. God made promises to us as a people. He's not answering, so we've got to ensure that those promises are kept. So they come up with a plan, and it's a Canaanite one. That pattern should sound familiar. Is this not the sin of Abraham in Genesis chapter 16? Oh, shades, this taking the fulfillment of God's promises into our own hands. This goes all the way back to the beginning. God promised Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, that he would give him a son. When it didn't look like God was being good on his word, what did Abraham and his wife Sarah do? They took God's promise into their own hands, came up with their own plan, one that they adapted from the culture that surrounded them. 
We'll use the cultural tools to make God's promises happen and come to pass. That's the same thing Israel's still doing. He made promises us to, a, to us as a people. We got to ensure that those are being kept. They come up with a plan, a Canaanite one. So here's what they do. To save the tribe of Benjamin from extinction, they're like, we got 600 men left, so we need 600 wives. We just have one problem. All of us swore before the Civil War that we would, we would not give any of our daughters to Benjamin. Like, these people who for this entire book have been perfectly fine intermarrying with Canaanites now aren't cool with marrying within their own nation. Everything's upside down. And the fact that they want to keep this crazy oath is just, but like, why not break it? It was dumb. They keep it because of canonization. They believe they will be cursed if they break it. That's why they got to keep it and just look for a loophole. We've seen this before. You remember Jephthah? who made a crazy oath, but he kept it because like a Canaanite, he feared he would be cursed and keeping his oath led to death through the sacrifice of his own daughter. Something very similar is about to happen right here. These men, what they decide to do is they go, hey, there was this one clan, this one family group that didn't show up to participate in the Civil War. So let's go kill all of them, take all the single women, and give them to Benjamin. That way, none of us gave our daughters loophole. They do it. But even that's not enough. Sin never is. They get 400, which is 200 short. So they come up with a second plan, another Canaanite one in verses 16 to 24. These men, they tell these 200 Benjamites that are left in need of wives. They say, all right, look, here's the deal. There's going to be this festival happening at Shiloh, this religious festival. There'll be a bunch of women there dancing. Y'all go hide in the vineyards. And when one of them dances too close, snatch them. This is what they do. And one of the most interesting things to me about the way our author recounts this story to us is specifically what he says about Shiloh in verse 12. He calls it Shiloh of the land of Canaan. Shade, you got to realize, Canaan is what the land was called before Israel conquered it. After the conquest, it's called Israel. Or maybe Israel and Judah. Or the promised land. Or something like like that. But it's not called that right here in Judges 21.12. This is the only place in the entire Bible where the conquered land is called Canaan once again. Everything's upside down. It's called Canaan because this is what Israel had become. They are Canaanite to their core. I mean, verse 12 specifically speaks about Shiloh of the land of Canaan. Shiloh is the heart of Israel's religion right now. It's it's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept at this time. It's, It's at the heart of everything. It's where Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, served. This is the heart, represents the heart of everything they believe. And God looks right there and says, you are Canaanite to your core. And that's exactly what they act like. In the name of fulfilling God's promises, no less, they act like Canaanites. They take the fulfillment of his promises into their own hands, aim to keep them through Canaanite methods and shades. This is where we got to ask, do we see the similarities between Israel and ourselves? Like, how do Christians... Respond to the darkness of this world. Do we not often take the fulfillment of God's promises into our own hands? I just give you one example of how we do this. We do it through panic. Through, through panic. We, we look around at the darkness of our world and we freak out. 
looks like God's not keeping his promises. And so like everybody else, we live out of fear. We panic. Perhaps the promises of God won't come to pass without our help. Perhaps we need to wield the same weapons as our Canaanite-like culture in order to like help God out. I mean, I mean like he needs my political candidate in power to keep the darkness at bay, right? So I'll use whatever propaganda I got to. I'll make all the angry posts seizing, seething with hate for the, the other side. I'll do whatever I've got to do as long as we don't lose. Because if we lose, that means the darkness wins. And in our panic, we take the promises of God into our own hands in a way that seems right in our eyes. But shades, Shades, judges refuses, it refuses to let us respond to the darkness that way because judges has shown us again and again and again that it is precisely when it looks like God's promises are failing that he is at work keeping them. Is that not what we've seen? Precisely, again and again throughout the book of Judges, precisely when his people abandon him precisely when the Canaanites are conquering them, precisely when all other lights are going out, he is keeping his promises to Israel. And the light of the gospel shines forth precisely then in unconquerable light. It shines forth incomparably bright. Even, even here, even right here, Shades, at the very end of Judges, after everything we've seen, we've got to be left asking, how does Israel even still exist after all of this? Judges 1 to 21, how is there still an Israel? The only answer is God's faithfulness to his promises. It's not because of anything they've done. All they've done has been aimed at self-destruction. They exist not because of their faithfulness, but God's, God's faithfulness to his people, which even their unfaithfulness apparently cannot kill. Del Ralph Davis says that Judges shows us that our God's grace is more tenacious than our deepest depravity. Shades. We are a people who do not panic because we have a God who keeps his promises all by himself. So panic is not how we respond to the darkness. No, how do we respond? We respond with hope. It's the flip side of panic. We respond with hope. Hope that God will bring his promises to pass. And remember, we talk about this a lot. Biblical hope is not like we normally use the word hope every day in our lives. We use it to express an uncertainty. I hope the weather's good. I hope my team wins the game. It's an expression of an uncertainty. Biblical hope is not that. It's not an expression of an uncertainty. It's an expectation of a guarantee. Biblical hope is I'm expecting that God will do what he said he will do. All of his promises will come to pass. And that's a hope that we have that no amount of darkness can extinguish. So that hope actually ends up shining a light right in the midst of the dark world. Our hope shines a light on the God in whom it is placed. It shines a light on Christ. Christ who entered into this dark world as the light that could not be conquered. He went to the cross where he took on darkness and death itself and conquered it by rising in life and light. And he will come again, shades, to judge the world. And that word judge, what have we seen that it means throughout this book? It means govern, rule. He will come again to rule. And that is a good thing. Psalm 96 and verse 13, the Lord comes to judge the earth. And Psalm 96 says all of creation celebrates that. Why? Because it means he's coming to rule. He will judge the world, rule it, govern it in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So we respond to the darkness of this world, the darkness of judges, not at all like we've seen Israel respond with with despair that takes God's judgment into its own hands or, or panic that takes God's promises into its own hands. No, we respond to the darkness with faith, faith in God's justice. We respond to the darkness with hope, hope in his promises. And that faith and that hope sets us free to shine forth the light of his love. 
these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. After every other light has gone out. And the greatest of these is love. In this dark world, I don't despair. I don't panic as if there is no king. So I just need to do what's right in my own eyes. That's how Judges ends. Look at it. Chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges ends that way as a call for you and me to respond to the darkness differently. In this dark world, I don't despair, I don't panic, because there is a king who will make all things right in his eyes. Judges calls me to live shining forth that light, the light of the love of Christ that no amount of darkness can conquer. Oh, shades, shades. Judges has shown us that precisely when all other lights go out, we respond with the only light that cannot be conquered, the light of the gospel of Christ. go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all.